Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are mining the best bits from Grit by Angela Duckworth, why passion and resilience are the keys to success. What Angela Duckworth did was did a study of super successful high achievers to try to work out what were the traits or characteristics or approaches that they took that led them to this mega level of success. So, she looked at the United States Military Academy the really hardcore training, waking up at 5 a.m. through to 10 p.m. with really no rest, salespeople, the ones who get knocked back and slapped up and failed every time, and then the spelling bee kids and all the spelling bee kids out there listening, you know it's really tough. You got to put in a lot and a lot of hours of mundane work to just get those big, big words right, which um, you're good at, Asho, but I'm not. But I, don't in every- know, I don't know how many spelling bee kids we've got listening. There <laughs> might be a few. <laughs> There's a few, I think. <laughs> But in every case, and probably your job, your own endeavors, there is something there that makes you keep persisting and moving forward, and some people just quit at the very start. And this is what Angie has been researching in her area of grit. What she found that tended to be the biggest predictor, it wasn't like the smartest people and it wasn't the fittest people who were pushing through the military. What she found was this massive correlation between the people who got through to the other side of these tough endeavors and what she determined as the grit score. So she's created this test, which is just 10 simple questions. And all you have to do is rank yourself from one to five, ranging from not at all like me, not much like me, somewhat like me, mostly like me, and very much like me. And these questions, these 10 questions are across both passion and perseverance. So a few examples like my interests change from year to year, or I am a hard worker, or I have difficulty maintaining focus on projects that take more than a few months to complete or setbacks don't discourage me, I don't give up easily. And you're ranking yourself and adding these up and you get a grit score at the end of it. I scored shit ass in this thing. <laughs> there's, no, uh, there's no way of putting a bit of salt and pepper on that. I was shit on this grit score. You were pretty shit as well. I, got a, I was uh, disappointed how low my grit was. And mate, even that's actually just to, to go matter. This is the second time we're recording because halfway through this, this episode, our recording software crashed and I almost wanted to give up because I had no grit. I had no determination to keep going through the pain. Yeah, if, you, if we're reviewing grit, we couldn't just give up <laughs> Se- 17 minutes in. Yeah. We had to push through and that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, so what grit comes down to it is this mix, this combination of both passion and perseverance. And this is what Angela Duckworth found to be the best predictor of eventual success, where the people that had enough interest in what they were doing, that they were able to push through the hurdles and setbacks and have the resilience to keep going and persevere through the tough times to get to that end level of achievement. So Angela Duckworth, before she did this research, she was a school teacher and she had maths classes. And what she did was some initial tests that identified the students who were talented or gifted and the ones who were innately better at the math than the others. And throughout the year, they had tests and exams. And then at the end of the year, they found the students who performed the best and learnt the most during the year wasn't necessarily the most talented kids. Yeah, she said that aptitude did not necessarily guarantee achievement and that this talent for math was different from actually excelling in math class. So, you probably think that depending on how good you were at maths in school, you might think either, oh, I'm just not a numbers person, I'm just not a maths person, or maybe you thought, yeah, I'm a natural, I'm talented, I'm gifted for maths. But what she found was that it was actually nothing to do with the talent or their scores at the start of the year and had everything to do with the effort and the uh, the grit, I guess, that these students showed throughout the year. It was the ones that came to class prepared, they weren't playing around, they were looking at the teacher, not out the window, they took notes, they asked questions, if they didn't get something, they followed up, they got extra help after the class, 
These were the types of students, regardless of their talent or innate aptitude for maths, these were the types of students that performed the best at the end of the year. And it's backed up by a whole bunch of research in different areas. So, so in school, those who put in more effort beat the ones with talent. When it came to athletic ability, the ones who trained hard were better than the ones with innate ability they were born with. And the ones who were best in the workplace were the hardest workers rather than those with the huge IQs. So even though this is the theory, what we do is quite the opposite. We choose talent over ability in reality. When you're going for that job interview, so the boss, if they were rational, they'd go for the hard worker who's got the low IQ, who's worked their ass off to get to that point where they can land that interview compared to the talented person who scored highest on the psychometric tests. And I think that's what we value. We'll go to the psychometric test, the ones who score the highest in that, which is more of an innate ability um, indicator and measurer. We're very easily swayed by this perceived intelligence or the people that just seem like they're naturals. You know, the girl who's the natural public speaker as opposed to the one who's striving and practicing really hard. We think naturals are just better than everybody. And we tend to uh, write ourselves off as, you know, oh, they're just better than us. They're naturally gifted. And it almost lets us off the hook. If somebody's got this thing that they're born with, that we could never get to that level of achievement. So we don't even bother trying. Yeah, when we buy into that story, you really don't have to go out there and work your your ass off at everything. If every single skill in the world, your general belief that it's a fixed talent that they're born with and they're just a lucky person, you're going to sit on your ass and eat the chocolate and play video games because what's what's the bloody point of going out there and trying anything? A US researcher, Dan Shambliss, he was researching swimmers and his, uh, his study, his paper was called The Mundanity of Excellence. And what he found that these dazzling human achievements that we write off as gifts or talents or innate abilities, it was actually just an aggregate of countless individual elements and each of them were very, very ordinary, but they worked really, really hard at improving these small but achievable things. You know, this probably one of the Australia's greatest swimmers, Olympians, Ian Thorpe. He was a great swimmer in the early 2000s. He had these massive feet, like size 17 or size 18. And everybody says, well, you know, he's, he's gifted with his massive feet. So, of course, he's going to be a good swimmer. But what that does is that sets him apart as some angelic mystical dude with his massive feet. And so, he's guaranteed to succeed. And it means that we could never catch him. But all what that does is that neglects all of those 4 a.m. wake-ups, those six hours a day of training, all the effort and practice that he put into it. But that doesn't matter. He's just got massive feet. So, he's destined to win anyway. You can probably extrapolate that to any area that you see someone successful we our automatic reaction is that they're lucky but it's definitely not the case they're working their ass off and this should be the starting assumption that we take on if we're going to employ grit so what is dan shambles found that the main thing about greatness is that it's doable and all greatness really is is many many individual feats stacked together all of them are achievable all of them are doable if you're willing to i guess have the grit to go through this Ange says something similar she says, talent multiplied by effort equals skill, and skill multiplied by effort equals achievement. Now, if you drop effort out of the equation, you're not getting skill and you're not getting any of achievement. So, both of them are completely dependent on the amount of effort you put in, and effort counts twice when it comes to reaching achievement. So, talent in Angela Duckworth's view is really just the speed at which you can improve your skills once you apply effort. So, yes, of course, Ian Thorpe, he's got bigger feet and maybe he's got broader shoulders. So, maybe he can improve a little bit quicker than somebody who is a bit smaller or a bit shorter, but nothing comes without that effort. So, even though you start with this 
initial talent. It means nothing until you multiply it by effort to get some skills. And then you've got to, again, multiply your skills by more effort to get to eventual achievement. So the risk of shining the spotlight on talent is that we neglect all of these other factors of success. So things like the effort, commitment, interest, passion, open-mindedness, curiosity, all of these elements of success are neglected if we just dismiss things as talent. So good news, if you're like me and Ash and you scored very, very <laughs> low on the grit scale, surprisingly and quite depressingly, then the road back to grit is followed in the next four sections of the book. Interest. The first component of getting and growing your grit is having an interest. So Duckworth tells us that this idea of follow your passion is quite possibly the most popular theme in college commencement speeches. If you look at Jeff Bezos from Amazon, he was telling people that after much consideration, I took the less safe path of following my passion. And then Will Shorts, the editor of New York Times, says that my advice for you Figure out what you enjoy doing most in life and then try to do it full time. There's all of these people that are suggesting, you know, find something that you love and you won't work a day in your life. If you can find something that you love, you'll be lucky to wake up every morning and look forward to work. All of these people are preaching passion and finding the things that you really enjoy doing and then going out and doing them. Research backs this up uh, about the benefits and upside of passion. There was, uh, there was a meta-analysis over 100 different studies into passion over every conceivable industry or occupation and the ones whose occupations better aligned with what their interests are surprise surprise they had more grit they had a lot more happiness in their lives and they did better in their performance as a whole they were not only more satisfied with their jobs they were more satisfied with their whole life and not only were they more satisfied they actually performed better in their jobs so she found another meta-analysis of 60 years worth of research and studies that found that the employees whose intrinsic personal interests fit with their occupations were actually better at their jobs, they were more helpful to their co-workers, they stayed in their jobs longer, and they were much less likely to quit. So, nobody is interested in everything and everybody is interested in something and you need to find out what your interest is. And for a lot of people out there, I think it's really, really difficult, this kind of thing. If you haven't found out what your passion is, what your interest is, then it's hard to know what your exact uh, next, next steps are. And I think this is the majority rather than the minority of people out there. And uh, going back to the recent episode we did with um, Unscripted, he had the litmus test of what's your difference of excitement between your Friday and your Monday. If it's a big difference where you're super excited and TGIF, it's Friday, and you're super miserable on the Monday morning, then you probably haven't found your passion or the thing that gets you going on your Monday to Friday. Luckily, she's got some advice here on how we can find our passions. Yeah, it's obviously naive to think that every minute of every day can be something that you love in your work, but obviously, interest does matter. So, matching your job to what captures your attention is a good idea. It doesn't guarantee happiness and success, but it certainly helps the odds. So, Duckworth gives us a bit of a three-stepper here as to how to find and develop our interests and passions. And the first one is discovery. First, you look at childhood. Most people think it's just way too early and you know jack shit when you're a little kid, toddler running around. But longitudinal studies of thousands of people have shown that most people only begin to gravitate toward their interests in their teenage years. So, in high school, when you're just starting to work out your likes and dislikes, this is the time of life you need to be looking at. Obviously, you're not going to know exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life, but you're going to get a little bit of a taste of the your interest, what do you like more and what do you like less? So, you're going to be shifting in one direction or another. 
And another big thing that she says is that interests are not discovered through deep introspection. So it's not like you sit uh, in the bushes and meditate and wonder about what do you love in your life and what do you not love and you awaken after two hours and you realize what your interests and your passion are. She says that's definitely uh, not the way to do it and it's not really realistic at all. Instead, it's this messy process of discovery, serendipity, this inefficient mess and eventually you find something that might trigger a little bit of a spark. Yeah, because it's serendipitous, if you just stay in the same mundane routine every single week, not inviting any uncertainty at all, you're not going to have these new things popping into your life so you can actually discover your purpose. So, if you haven't figured it out yet, you need to really go out there and just try new things and new things and invite these uncertainty into your life and over time, you're going to get a better and better understanding of what you should be focusing on. For me, when I was in university and I hadn't really found my passion or purpose or anything, my goal was uh, to go to two meetups a week on completely random topics and... At the time, it didn't seem like it was time well spent, but looking back, it was, a, it was a very, very good time well spent for only you know three hours investment per week. So, the second step after discovery is development. So, crucially, after you've had this little spark, this little trigger, you need to find other ways of re-triggering it. She gives the example here of a NASA astronaut named Mike Hopkins. He was so intrigued, the first time he saw a space shuttle launch on TV, he was absolutely captivated. But that one moment doesn't instantly mean that that's his interest and his passion. It was that over several years, he saw several more of these launches and each little bit of information led him to dig a little bit deeper and develop that interest a little bit further. He'd read and research about space, about NASA, about exploration, about planets, all these different things to gradually develop this initial spark into more of an interest over time. So, Mikey boy, it wasn't just figuring out his passion about that. It's a real hardcore process of months and years and decades of deepening your interest and your passion. You really discover all the nuances that's involved in this, this area of being an astronaut or whatever it might be for you. So, in sum, this follow your passion, it's not bad advice, but what's probably more useful is to understand how passions are discovered and fostered in the first place. So, Angela Duckworth's three steps of discovery, development and deepening is probably better advice than just saying go and follow your passion practice the second component of growing grit is kaizen or constant improvement so kaizen is a japanese term that's all about resisting that plateau and passing those diminishing returns that happen when you're really developing skills so what she says that in anything new you do there's obviously going to be some initial improvements but what can often happen if you're not conscious about it is that you start to plateau Without this Kaizen, this constant improvement, this getting 1% better every day, you're probably going to be satisfied with your level of progress so far. But instead, we need to flip that around and never be satisfied with where we're at and always be looking forward to what are the next steps, what are the next improvements, what's the next way that we can get better. So, it's understanding there's a difference between spending more time on a task or spending better time on a task. So, Malcolm Gladwell, who discovered the 10,000 hours rule in his book, uh, Outliers, yeah, he really figured this one out really good. And he's a legend, this Malcolm Gladwell. And he eliminated the... Gladwell's been able to manipulate the masses to sell a lot of books. <laughs> Let's just leave it there about Gladwell. But his 10,000 hour rule wasn't bad. He showed that the more... He showed that this is the amount of time it takes to actually become successful. It's not tens or hundreds of hours, but it's thousands and thousands of hours but actually deliberate practice. Yeah, so 
Gladwell, obviously, uh, taking this from Anders Ericsson. Anders Ericsson found that these violinists, he found that there was a big difference between the group of just okay people versus a group of pretty good people versus a group of really, really good people. And he found that it was around 4,000 hours of practice for the bottom group, 7,000 hours of practice for the middle group, and 10,000 hours of practice for the top group. So, it's not just saying that if you do 10,000 hours of something, you're going to get really good, but it's actually 10,000 hours of focused, deliberate practice. So, what Anders Ericsson suggests is that these experts, they set stretch goals. So, they're looking ahead at something that they really need to improve on, something that's uncomfortable to do, but it's going to push them past their level of achievement and allow them to grow. So, it might be a swimmer, maybe they dedicate a whole block of training for two months just on diving off the blocks or just on tumble turns. They're focusing super, super deeply on this one element and trying to improve this one area that's going to ultimately lead them to an an order of magnitude of improvement. Yeah, I think there's some things like um, writing. We probably spend about 10,000 hours of our life doing that and not all of us by default are going to end up an expert writer. It's the people who really study the nuances that come into writing and spend time developing in that sense are the ones who end up the superstar authors. Mm. Or another one would be walking. Let's say you spend about 10,000 hours, some more than others. Um, A lot of time walking, but it does mean you're going to go out there and be a superstar walker. It's the ones who really care and think about the walking. They win their gold medals in their track and track and field events in the Olympics. That's actually probably, yeah, that's pretty good. I was pretty happy with those yeah. two analogies. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the grit. That, um, <laughs> this is this is all fresh, new, really recorded stuff. Uh, we're past the area where we, we everything crashed. So. Yeah. yeah, this is the, <laughs> the fresh stuff. Uh, and another big part of this is getting feedback, uh, getting feedback as soon as possible. So, these experts, they were hungry for feedback. They didn't want to just be praised for doing well. They wanted the... They wanted to find out what they weren't doing so well so that they could improve. They weren't. They didn't just want the cushy, nice advice of a good job and a pat on the back. They wanted to say, this is an area that you can improve in and this is going to make you better. This is probably the most difficult to receive and definitely the most difficult to give. So, if you end up in a work or any kind of relationships where you can actually give and receive constructive feedback and have the spotlight put on areas where you suck a little bit but you got areas to improve then this is a huge win because it's very rare i think uh if you look around and now the key here is that once you achieve your stretch goal obviously you're not satisfied with that what you what do you do next you set the next stretch goal so you're looking for the next order of magnitude improvement that you can find that's going to extend you even further and one by one these subtle refinements that you're mastering over time can all add up to this dazzling high achievement and what people are probably going to look at you and say you're so gifted and so talented. So, one of the keys here, you need to make these stretches a habit as part of your work and your routine or whatever you're really trying to have a crack at. Every single day, if you haven't gotten to a place where you're stretching yourself to the point where you get into uh, Mahal Csikszentmihalyi flow zone, I said that right, yeah, give me the nod good, of yeah. approval, I thought it was a one in three chance but we... <laughs> But we got there. But if you're not doing that, then you're probably not being gritty. So, I think every week, a bit of introspection about how much you're stretching yourself in the area that you want to be focusing and achieving success on. And another big shift is also shifting the way that you experience practice. So, obviously, putting yourself through the pain of this stretch goal of focusing on something that you're not so good at is going to be tough to do. But if you can shift the way that you experience practice and enjoy the practice itself... And rather than bemoaning the mundanity and the laboriousness of this practice and just looking for the end goal, if you can enjoy the practice itself, 
you're going to set yourself up for much better improvement and much better success later on. Purpose. There's a story that's come up in a few books about three bricklayers. Someone off the street came up and said, hey, you know, what are you you all building over there? Now, the first person said, I'm laying bricks. Now, this person had a job. The second person said, hey, I'm building a cathedral. And this person had what we call a career. And then the third person said, no, mate, I'm building the house of God where we can worship and fulfill our life's dreams. I had a bit of salt and pepper on the air, um, (laughs) but that person had a calling. But you can see the three different levels, the people who just see that minute-to-minute task compared to the people who career, and the people have a very long-term, infinite game kind of focus, understand what their calling in life is. Absolutely. If you're working towards that calling, and if you have this sense of purpose in what you do, you're going to have a hell of a lot more grit than somebody who's just laying bricks. Adam Grant's done some research on motives as well and he's found that most people think there is this straight line continuum or this spectrum between self-oriented and other-oriented, meaning that you can either be one or the other. You're somewhere along this spectrum that it's either you're doing things selfishly to gain for yourself or you're doing things other-oriented and you're doing things to contribute to society as a whole. But what Adam Grant found is that it's not one or the other. You can actually have both. You can do work that is both sustaining yourself and achieving your own selfish goals, but also pro-social and benefiting the community as a whole at the same time. If you've got the focus of that higher vision where you're really looking to help out others and say if you go for a really tough week and if you're going through a tough period in your startup or your business or whatever you might be doing, it's much easier if you can see that's the value that you're providing to that higher vision. If you're just doing it for the very low-level kind of results, then you're probably going to drop out pretty quick. This is all very much easier said than actually done. Um, But again, she's got some suggestions how we can increase our feelings of purposeness. And Duckworth says, it doesn't matter what the hell you're doing, even if you're a cleaner, you're a gardener or whatever, every single person can inject a bit more purpose into what they do. Obviously, having more purpose leads to more grit. And as we know, more grit leads to more effort and more achievement over time. And so, a first suggestion here for discovering a bit of a sense of purpose is to reflect on the work that you're already doing and how that's making a positive contribution to society, no matter how big or small. Next, after that, is to think about how in small but meaningful ways you can change your current work to enhance its connection to your core values. So, firstly, you're seeing what you're already doing. Next, you're thinking about what can you shift to make it a little bit better and do a little bit more for other people. She calls this job crafting. It's not quitting a job and finding something different and going to work for a charity that is saving the world, but maneuvering within what you're currently doing to add a little bit of a greater sense of purpose and a little bit more value. And then the third and final suggestion is to find inspiration from a purposeful role model. So, look to somebody in the world that's doing great things who really inspires you to become a better person and think about how you can take some lessons from them and apply them to your own trajectory. Hope. There's another Japanese saying, which seems to be a common theme throughout the book, is fall seven, rise eight. So, one kind of hope is that tomorrow will be better than today, and that's sort of the the type of hope that puts the onus on the universe to make things better. But true grit comes from a different kind of hope, and that's rather than saying, I have a feeling that tomorrow will be better, it's actually saying, I resolve that I will make tomorrow better. This is the hope has nothing to do with luck, but everything to do with just getting back up again when you get slapped down. 
And a big part of this is optimism. And this is a big mindset mindset shift that we need to change, the way we view all the setbacks and hurdles when things really hurt us. Your good mate, Martin Seligman. I don't like Selig. <laughs> you went and saw him and he wasn't too good. I was he- expecting him a lot more, but he was an odd, odd old man. He's a very odd dude. And also probably the rudest reply to an author request interview email that we've ever got. That's right. Yeah, what do we say again? We asked him for the thing and he just said no. <laughs> he said no no. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> but anyway, he's, uh, he's all about positive psychology and happiness and flourishing and making the world better and having optimism. On which, the outside, on the, that's, ins- that's on what the inside, he's just about being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> that's what his career has been all about. But anyway, this, this one big part of optimism is, is he asks people to imagine that you can't get all of your work done that others expect of you. And the question here is, what leaps to mind as one of the major causes of this event? And the different responses can give a big insight into whether you're more of a pessimist or more of an optimist. So, the pessimists, when they can't get their work done, they go home, they might think, oh, I always screw everything up. I'm a loser. I suck, blah, blah, blah. But the optimist goes home and says, I didn't work efficiently because of distractions or I mismanaged my time. So, there's a very big difference here. The optimist obviously, first of all, puts all the power in her own hands and she's got control whereas the pessimist again is just pointing toward the universe and thinking thinking they've got no power in this situation another big difference here is that optimists view the setbacks as temporary and specific whereas pessimists view the setbacks as permanent and pervasive so the pessimist setback you know i'm not good at managing my time is very different to i mismanage my time in this project so, one is permanent, saying you're never good at managing your time, whereas one is temporary, saying just in this project, I wasn't so good. And another difference is a pessimist might say, I'm not good at sports, which is pervasive, saying you're not good at any physical activity, whereas the optimist might say, oh, I'm just not good at pitching in baseball. That's a very specific setback. Absolutely. Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. So, if you think you can't, then you can't. 100% you can't. Mm. If you think you can, at least you have some possibility is the first step to being able to do anything. So, this is really the essence of optimism. So, Angela Duckworth's suggestions here are threefold again, which is she's got a nice little framework for each chapter. The first thing is shifting to a growth mindset. So, updating your beliefs about intelligence and talent. So, we're circling a little bit back to what we talked about at the very start. There are some people out there who think that all the skills in the world and the people out there who are able to do things, they're just born with these innate talents rather than they went out there and they actually tried really hard through effort to cultivate the skills. And if you're believing that they cultivated it through effort, that's what she calls the growth mindset. Once you've got a bit of a growth mindset, you next need to shift your self-talk to be more optimistic. So, whenever you have a setback or a hurdle, think about what you're saying to yourself and think, is it more pessimistic or more optimistic? Make sure that you're shifting that self-talk rather than having permanent problems to just having a temporary issue for this time and rather than pervasively talking yourself down about everything that you do, just have it as this one specific setback that you can work on and improve. And the third one, which we've really demonstrated today is perseverance through adversity. So, when this obstacle pops up out of nowhere, you need to actually persevere and head through it. She's got the example of a 1940 Harvard treadmill test. So, what there was with these young men that 
based on their fitness, were given a, a treadmill at a certain speed and, and incline, and they had to just keep going as long as they could. And obviously, there's a hell of a lot of perseverance in that, in keep going and pushing through the pain in this one specific trial. That's a lot of perseverance. And that's one big part of grit is keeping going when times are tough. But then the next element of grit is also keeping going the next time. So if you come back the next day and jump on the treadmill again, that's a whole nother level of grit and perseverance. Yeah, some people just start down the path and then they just give up way too early. They might go out there and buy a treadmill. This is exactly what um, my mum did. I love my mum. She's one of the most grittiest people you'll ever meet in your whole entire life, but not when it comes to buying <laughs> and running on treadmills. Say it costs 400 bucks or something like that. I reckon it costs her 50 bucks per uh, per 100 meters spent on it. So, it was a very, very expensive short-lived treadmill and this is the case for a lot of people out there. There's another one. I think my uncle bought, I remember just seeing him buy this um this thing for the abs when you sit up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he admitted one day, Ad- he said it cost, or something. Yeah, yeah. it cost me 20 bucks per sit up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, many of us, it seems, quit the things that we start far too often, far too early. So, there's the grit of pushing through on our single try, but then there's also the grit of falling seven and rising eight. Each time you fall, get up again and try again. And so, that's ultimately what grit boils down to is that ability to persevere through the pain. 